Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and add a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful and sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner. What comes to mind when I say the word college? Do you recall all-nighters of cramming and caffeine or envision one giant keg stand, football stadiums, and skipping class? Do you think about privilege and the limited access to higher education and how it relates to your own upward mobility? Or is your heart palpitating from the nightmare of crushing student loan debt? I personally have mixed feelings. Given my track record of bouncing around eight schools before eighth grade, then hardly having a legitimate GED while working full-time as a minor, my academic background is spotty at best. I dabbled in a few semesters at a private, religious, online, liberal arts university at some point, uh, and I appreciated the opportunity to learn, but I did wonder whether it was truly worth it and what I'd have to show for it in case I dropped out prior to getting that coveted paper slip of proof. As students and young people... We're quite gullible and susceptible to believing those in positional authority over us have the answers, the methods, and relatively good intentions for our success, and that exposure to a wide scope of disciplines and technical knowledge can open our minds to the many fields in which we may aspire to build a career and livelihood. That's really promising in theory except that in reality, our education system is impetuously failing us as individuals and society, and if left unchecked and unchallenged, will only continue increasing inequity, incompetence, and vulnerability to greater peril for our families, communities, country, and world. No pressure. But one man is seriously not having it. Ben Nelson is not only demanding dramatic change in higher education, he's also the founder, chairman, and CEO of Minerva Project, whose goal is to provide an Ivy League education at a fraction of the price. He partnered with Keck Graduate Institute, a private graduate school in Claremont, California, with the shared understanding that our current models are outdated, our methods are fatally flawed, and trust me, Minerva gives education the long-needed total makeover we all need and deserve. It is the first-of-its-kind intentional university. Minerva proudly represents the most internationally diverse student body in the world, with classes traveling together to seven cities around the globe, actively engaging with local civic partners along the way to gain meaningful experience by working on challenges relevant to uh, different regions and sectors, all while reinforcing and applying the reformed academic principles and core competencies in state-of-the-art classrooms. Sound too good to be true? It's not. So today, I'm picking his brain to better understand the problems and solutions within higher education, as well as how Minerva is literally reinventing the future. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alison. (laughs) How is that intro? Mostly accurate? Very accurate. In fact, I think the interview's done. I think you basically covered everything. (laughs) Perfect. I was trying to be an A-plus student. (laughs) Make up for lost time. (laughs) So uh, Minerva, as you've mentioned in different interviews and during different presentations, is based on a very controversial perspective. What is that perspective? Well, that perspective is that education matters. Why is that controversial? Right. Well, it sounds like everybody would agree to that. Right. That's one of those, you know, mom and apple pie type things. Everybody thinks that education matters. So I can prove to pretty much anybody who's listening at the same time that nobody believes that education matters and that everybody believes that education matters, except that they have this split personality day to day. Right. Mm. So you ready for this exercise? Yes. Okay. So I always like to put other people in your mind. So don't think about yourself because when you think about your own decisions, you have all sorts of internal biases and you kind of trick your mind, but just think of parents of 18 year olds that you know, get that vision in your mind. And now imagine that their children are applying to college and they have been accepted to two institutions. Institution number one is Harvard University. Nice. Harvard, very nice. Congratulations. (laughs) 
Second institution is ranked a hundred spots below Harvard, but the parents know that their child will get a vastly superior education mm. in that other institution. How many of those parents would send their children to the second institution or advocate for that? Hmm. Think about that and my guess is zero. <laughs> Effectively, nobody would say, oh yeah, you know what? I'm going to actually bring my child to a place where they will learn and grow as a person as opposed to get some random stamp, which they actually think matters. And so now the question is, well, there's a dichotomy. Well, why is it that when you're making a decision, a substantive decision, you're going to do what's best for your company, but when you're making a decision for your own child, you're going to ignore what you know is best in your day-to-day life, but instead mm. pursue these brands. Right. And so this idea that Minerva is based on, that education matters, lives in the world of reality. <laughs> and when we actually discuss with individuals, when they actually meet our students and say, oh my God, usually they ask, where did you find them? Which mm -hmm. is, well, we didn't find them like this. Right. <laughs> they were normal. <laughs> but then we actually taught them how to think systematically. And that systematic thinking is what enables them to be successful in the real world. That's what we're based on. So from your perspective, what do you see as the fundamental problem with higher education institutions? Problems, plural. <laughs> well, I mean, outside of who they choose to educate, what they educate, how they educate, and where they educate, they're fine. But they're all related. You know, oftentimes when we talk about higher education, we talk about the symptomatic problems. And the symptoms aren't actually at the core. The core is, I believe, a misguided view of what a college education should be all about, the curricular perspective. Hmm. And universities effectively have abandoned the idea of a general education. You know, one of the things that's supposed to distinguish the American university from non-American universities is that you get a broad liberal arts education. You know, you go to university in most other countries in the world, you will go and study physics. And all the courses you'll take are only physics, or you'll study history, and all you'll take is history. That's it. In the United States, your major, the major area of your study, is less than half of the courses that you take at most universities. And so there's this concept that you're supposed to study a liberal arts education, but the reality is if you ask almost anybody to define what is a liberal arts education, they wouldn't be able to tell you. And because of that, universities are drifting. They don't really have a central purpose and they don't know what to think through. And that's and that leads to all sorts of knock-on effects that have made substantial societal problems that emanate from the university and impact it as well. And you've drawn comparisons between the relationship of the structured education and the overemphasis on research output and how that really impairs the educational outcome overall. Can you speak more to that? Sure. Think about, you know, what makes universities renowned, right? What, why is it that you have, you know, certain universities that are at the top of the pecking orders and others that are below them? The reality is that there is no measure that is used in the quality of the delta of education at those institutions, meaning you look at the mental state of the students at the beginning of, of those four years and you look at it at the end and you see how much the university improved it. That's not the measure of rankings mm. or prestige. The measure is actually research output. How many Nobel Prize winners do you have? How much do the professors publish? Uh, how much groundbreaking research they've done, et cetera, by various measures, how much money they get from the NIH to do research, et cetera. So research is very important. It's important for our society. It's important for discoveries to move humanity forward. But do not confuse research output with undergraduate education. One has nothing to do with the other. In fact, there is a negative correlation. If you actually look at the efficacy of individual professors and how well they teach, there is a negative correlation between research-oriented professors versus teaching-oriented professors and the quality of their instruction. And that obviously makes sense. If you are really wonderful at you know thing X, the likelihood that you're also really wonderful at thing Y, especially when all of your incentives are tied to X, is low. So you're saying some teachers show up to teach 
and are not rewarded for it because they are they're not producing as much research as the next teacher. Correct. In fact, they're penalized for it because the entire incentive structure around universities is around the individual career and prestige of the professor. That you can't fault them for that, right? You you have to think about like they're individuals. They want to make sure. a living. They want to make more money over time. They want to be more successful. They want to be right. more recognized. Right. All of those recognitions have to do with how good their research is. There is not, not a scenario. Not how great a teacher they are. Not of how great of a teacher they are. Wow. And, and not to mention, and by the way, even those professors that get rewarded for teaching are oftentimes, the universities don't know how to measure teaching. So rather than actually measuring learning outcomes, they measure popularity. Once again, there is a negative correlation between how good a professor rating is, meaning how well the students think the professor does, to learning outcomes. So it's not a huge negative correlation, but it is slight negative correlation, which means that, why? Because ultimately, what do students like? They like to be entertained. Hmm. But education isn't entertainment. (laughs) Education is thinking deeply. It's processing. It's understanding concepts. And entertainment doesn't always get that. And in fact, more often than not, it doesn't. Yeah, I know all about entertainment (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the facade that it (laughs) perpetuates. Um, So let's talk about the business side of higher ed. Forgive the oversimplification and, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are three categories, public, for-profit, and nonprofit schools. And in addition to accumulating money from tuition, public schools receive funding from the government, nonprofits from donors, and for-profits from shareholders. First, what is the infrastructural cost these days for one student in higher ed? And then second, is this business model sustainable? There are a lot of different business models in in higher education. And so, you know, of those three sectors that you mentioned, two of them are nonprofits, right? The publics are also nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Um, And in many ways, they behave in similar ways to the privates. Right. So when you're a Berkeley or University of Michigan or University of Virginia, you're ostensibly a public institution, but you think of yourself as competing with the Harvards and Stanfords and Princetons of the world. Hmm. Right. You compete for the same faculty. You compete for students. You compete for prestige. You're in the same rankings. Hmm. Right. And so the day to day operations of those institutions isn't dramatically different from one to the other. Right. So as an example, the University of Michigan, only 50 percent of the student body, the undergraduate student body is from Michigan, hmm. which means that the other 50 percent are paying seventy thousand dollars a year compared to the 50 percent that are in state that are paying thirty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And so is it a public institution hmm. or is it really a effectively a private nonprofit with a little bit of say that comes from hmm. the government and some subsidy, additional subsidy. Hmm. The University of California, San Francisco, which is an astonishing medical school, it doesn't have an undergraduate program at all, 3% of its budget comes from the state of California, yet it's considered a public institution. Wow. That's, that's a strange <laughs> yeah. you know, combination. And, yeah. so, and so these lines are very much blurred. Now, at the same time, you've got, if you look at kind of the the nonprofits, you have place like Caltech that has 250 undergraduates coming in every year, less than a thousand undergraduates total, and then similar number of graduate students. And then you've got Arizona State University that has a hundred thousand students, right? The nature of those institutions is very, very, very different. Right. Right. The for-profits are also a, a completely different animal in, in, in this case. And so the, the business model that's associated with those universities require these institutions to make certain choice levels, hmm. right? So there are really five broad choices that a university needs to make that will de- have great determination on their cost structure, their underlying cost structure. One is, will I pursue a heavy research agenda? And will that agenda be subsidized by undergraduates? Mm -hmm. In the United States, almost every university in the country has their research agenda subsidized by undergraduate tuition. If you look at the amount of money that the university receives by grants every year, 
And then you look at the amount of money they spend on research, both in direct costs and indirect costs, at professor time and all the rest, almost no university in the country makes up for the, for the amount of money they spend based on the research grants they come in. Whereas the rest, money that should be going to undergraduates, either, either in tuition or in drowning drawdowns. So that's question number one. Question number two is what is the nature of my faculty? Am I going to pay my faculty for work they do? Or am I going to have a tenure system, right, where I effectively pay for faculty for work they don't do or don't feel like doing or do it efficiently or they pay they get paid more just because they've been around for 40 years mm -hmm. as opposed to people who are more productive who have been around for fewer years. And that, you know, and, and so usually when people look at university costs, professors will claim, oh, well, look, the, the cost that universities spend on the professoriate hasn't risen. It's actually been steady over the past 30 years, but that actually masks a, a, a deeper truth, which is 50 years ago, 80% of professors in the United States were tenure or tenure track, meaning they were member, standing members of the faculty of those universities. Mm -hmm. Today, it's less than 30%. Hmm. So what happens is the standing members of the faculty are making huge increases in compensation compared to where they used to be, hmm. but their numbers are dwindling because the university cannot afford it. And instead they're using extremely low cost, sometimes below minimum wage labor in uh, adjunct professors, which is a, a crisis in and of itself. Wow. So that's second choice universities to make. Third choice is whether or not a university is going to have athletics. Hmm. Division one schools that participate in NCAA Division one sports have to spend roughly $10,000 per year per student, not per athlete, per matriculated student on their athletic programs. And there are about five or six athletic programs in the country out of 3,400 that are actually not drains where, on capital, meaning that they, their ticket sales and merchandise sales somehow make up for that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an irrelevantly small number. So it's a huge cost financially. There's enormous other costs academically and from the nature of the student body when you have intercollegiate athletics, which is another issue, oh my which gosh. we'll talk about later. But that's another big thing. And then the, the fourth is what will a university choose to spend on the amenities race, on the campus, on the physical infrastructure? Some universities say, well, who needs it? And they save a lot of money. And ho hopefully they pass that savings on to their students. Mm -hmm. Others will say, yeah, I've got a beautiful old campus. And even though it's going to cost me a billion dollars to keep it maintained, not adding a single square foot, I'm going to spend that money because that's, I believe, a good use of money. And so, but these four things are uh, sinking the cost structure of the university and they're added to by a fifth, which is the administrative burden of managing these things and the services they provide to students. Right, it's a whole and circus. Exactly, exactly. And so these five horsemen of the apocalypse of, of uh, higher education costs oh. are effectively taking hundreds of billions of dollars out of the American economy, whether it be government subsidies, taxpayer subsidies, or tuition dollars, that are completely frivolous. Uh, the United States spends uh, about $600 billion on higher education, about $660 billion in higher education. And a large portion of that is waste. And it actually gets worse uh -oh. if you really want to understand it. Sure. The American higher education system, because it is so financially broken, right. fundamentally caters to one kind of student, wealthy students. Right. Now, you know, there's all of this talk now, oh, make college free, forgive debt, forgive loan. There is nothing more regressive than that idea. And I'll, I'll give you the, the most alarming statistics. Okay. If you were an adult American in 1965 mm -hmm. and you were born into the top quintile of the socioeconomic distribution, meaning you were among the 20% wealthiest households in the world when you were born, and you were an adult in 1965, you had a 40% likelihood of having a college degree. Okay. If you were born into the bottom quintile, you had a 6% likelihood of having a college degree. 
huge disparity. Mm-hmm. 1965 is an important year because that's the year where federal financial aid for tuition uh, came into place. It was in the midst of the boom of uh, seats at universities. Philanthropy started cu- kicking in and, and thinking about access so later on in the promise of improvements, All sorts of promise of improvements. Need blind admissions and uh, highly selective universities was were, were kicking in in the 80s and 90s. And so you would think, okay, wow, that was a really bad situation in the 60s. Now let's fast forward to today. So look, fast forward 50 years, look at 2015. If you're an adult American in 2015, and you were born into the top quintile, right, top 20% of the uh, households in the country, you had an 80% chance of having a college degree, okay. which means that in that 50-year period, participation doubled for the wealthiest 20% of Americans. Yeah. Okay. That seems quite high. Mm-hmm. I don't know if 80% of any population needs to go to college, but that's fine in okay. theory. So now, of course, let's check in on the bottom quintile. Right. Right. They were at 6% in 1965. In 2015, the statistic was 9%. So what that means is that the top quintile doubled its college participation. The bottom quintile only went up by 50%. Right. The disparity got worse. And we spent trillions of dollars in the process trying to address the symptoms. Hmm. Now, if you say, let's go and make college free, what are you doing? You're taking all of that money and giving it to rich people or people who will be rich. Hmm. Who's paying for it? Everybody, including poor Americans. Yeah. It is the most regressive policy you could possibly propose for this country. Instead, a much easier solution would be the following. (laughs) Somebody would go and say, okay, you nonprofits, right? Whether public or private, you're being subsidized by the American taxpayer, all of you. And they're being subsidized by every single taxpayer. Everybody pays taxes of some kind, whether whether you're like it or not. You, right. you buy something, you're paying a tax, right? right? And somehow that trickles uh, broadly into the system. Right. And so from here on in, any university that isn't broadly reflective of the socioeconomic distribution of the United States loses its nonprofit status. And by the way, if you lose your nonprofit status, you lose access to, to not only federal financial aid, but you also lose access to any research dollars. Guess what? If the government implemented that, every Ivy League university would be 90% from the bottom 50% of the country hmm. because they couldn't afford to lose that status. Yeah. Right. And so now you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to increase you know, government spending. You have to do none of that. All you have to do is make sure that you bring to bear the hundreds of billions of dollars that you're spending already and target them towards areas that enable social mobility as opposed to prevent it from happening. Wow. And they're all related. Universities aren't run by evil people. They're not run by people who sit in dark rooms and plot how to sustain, you know, power in the United States and heaven forbid that, you know, we give opportunities for poor people to rise up. Right. No, that's not their orientation. They're generally good people, but they run an uneconomical beast. Yeah. And unless they cater to rich people, their current business model will collapse. Mm. They have to be given no alternative, right? To basically say, you must reform the way that you focus your institution, where you're focused on money or focused on prestige as opposed to learning outcomes, where you're focused on the trappings and things that make up a campus as opposed to actually thinking about what students learn and how they grow. Right. Right. We're focused on enabling social mobility as opposed to preventing it. Right. If you provide them an unpalatable alternative, meaning that they cannot afford not to actually think about their role in society, right. all of a sudden they're going to when push comes to shove, right. the people who will lose out are the people who buy their way in now. You did not select a simple problem to tackle. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of tentacles to this, and I really appreciate you outlining many of them. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll see how Minerva is attempting to tackle each of these. And uh, we'll be right back after this. Okay, welcome back. We're here with Ben Nelson talking about 
higher education and the conundrum that it is, but also the solutions that Minerva is offering the world really as a, a template that I hope the universities and, and other new educational institutions follow their footsteps. So shifting into Minerva land, before we dive into the specifics of how you reformed the curriculum, which really is a stark departure from anything I've, I've ever seen in universities. When and where did you come up with the idea and how has the process been about bringing that into reality? Well, the, the idea initially came about when I was a student and I had took a course on the history of the American University. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> even though the goal of the course was to think more about the community engagement of the university, how the university treats its neighbors and the local town, what I got out of uh, the study of it was actually what the point of the American University is. I talked a little bit earlier about people not understanding what a liberal arts education is. Mm -hmm. People think that liberal arts means humanities or poetry or things that are not useful. The exact opposite is true. Liberal mm -hmm. arts has nothing to do with the humanities. Hmm. The, the etymology of the term, the liberal arts, is the uh, arts, the disciplines, that allow you to have liberty, hmm. right? That's liberal arts. It means that it's an educational system that ensures your ability to be an enfranchised citizen, hmm. as opposed to a subject of a church or a monarchy. And so the, the reason that the United States created this liberal arts philosophy is that both before, but certainly after the Revolutionary War, the institutions that were started in the United States by the founding fathers or after the Revolutionary War, but those who were actually thinking about society, this new society, mm -hmm. realized that if you were to have a enfranchised citizenry, they needed to both know how to select and govern themselves and how to be effective when called upon to serve by their fellow citizen. Mm -hmm. So this is something that today we take for granted because right. People switch careers, uh, they go from one area to another. But in the 18th century, the idea that one day you're a pharmacist and the next day you're a diplomat, or one day you're a farmer and then you're a judge, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe you're a merchant and then you're a senator. Mm -hmm. That was crazy. Inconceivable. It, it was inconceivable. It was inconceivable. I, I, how how can you do that? You know, in the European model, the model that the, uh, the colonists knew, you were doing a thing for your entire life. Yeah. That was, that was the whole point. The educational system was about that. You were born into your station. You're there to serve crown, to serve the cross. Right. Right. And so that's the, the idea. Flash forward to modern times when we're multidimensional. <laughs> exactly. And so the greatness of the founders of this country was that they anticipated and created the future. Hmm. They understood that we, we as human beings in the future are going to have to have mobility. And so that struck me like a bolt of lightning okay. because I realized that universities were the guarantors of a functioning republic. And if they aren't actually teaching students right. how to think in what we refer to as transferable ways, what Franklin referred to as practical knowledge, which Jefferson referred to as useful knowledge, things that they actually need in order to be enfranchised, right. the Republic doesn't work. Right. And that was the initial motivating factor behind Minerva. Because you looked at the educational outcomes of our current systems and went, okay, I see what the goal was, and we are not achieving that goal. We're not achieving it, and we're not even pretending to try. Right. Right. Look at any of the curricular maps of any universities. Right. Where are the areas in which they know you are going to actually learn these tools? People will they'll get paid lip service to say, "Oh yes, here is your quantitative reasoning exactly. uh, process." But yeah, you, in order to do quantitative reasoning, take two courses out of a list of five hundred from any department. They have no idea what happens in these courses. They certainly don't learn anything that, that's useful. It's right. highly subject specific. And that's not how the brain actually works. Right. And so let's speak specifically to the Minerva curriculum and how it is different. You talked about systematic thinking, if you want to expound on that a bit. Also, practical knowledge versus, and making it transferable. Because your students are 
are getting a chance to recontextualize what they learned repeatedly in various scenarios, which of course is helping them embed it in their memory, but even down to how teachers are, are working with students in the classroom is different. What, what does exactly. that learning environment look like yeah. and what are you teaching? Yeah, so, so that, that's exactly right. Think about what a piece of practical knowledge is, right? If, if you don't feel well, and you go to a doctor, the doctor will always diagnose your illness before prescribing medication. Mm -hmm. That's pretty straightforward. We all know that as patients. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be doctors to know that. Yeah. Yet when we talk about a problem, a societal problem, when we talk about interrelationship problems, we rarely think about what is the root cause of the problem before we start prescribing solutions. Hmm. For example, free college. College is expensive, make it free, right? Right. That is not understanding exactly. That's saying, oh, you know, I have, I don't feel well. I have a stomach ache. Great. Here's medication. Right. It'll quell your, it'll quiet down your stomach. Mm -hmm. No, because you may have something that needs to be killed in your stomach. Yeah. Right. That may be eating you from the inside. You have to understand what the disease is. Mm -hmm. And so why is it that doctors don't understand the nature of problems any better than anybody else. Not because they don't know how to ask diagnostic questions, but because they've learned to ask diagnostic questions in the framework of medicine. And the brain is simply not well designed to take pieces of practical knowledge that you learn in one context and then apply it to others. Hmm. It's the role of educational institutions to actually recontextualize it for you. Okay. So rather than teaching somebody, here's how to diagnose an illness. Instead, you teach somebody to go through a process of understanding problems mm -hmm. before you understand how to solve the problem, figure out what is the problem that you need to solve, what we refer to as right problem. Okay. Now, let's demonstrate it to you, how you apply right problem in diagnosing illness, in how to think through societal problems and how to think through public policy problems. And then when you have a, a new problem that you encounter in your day-to-day -day life, let's say you have a fight with a friend or a spouse. Mm -hmm. Now, rather than thinking symptomatically, how do I resolve this fight? You can say, wait a second. I've seen this What's somewhere the underlying before. tension? <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. What's the pattern? What is it that I need to know about a friction that is occurring in our relationship and the cause of it? And let's address that friction. Right. Now you've learned a transferable skill. Right. And that's ultimately what a liberal arts education is all about. And you need a curriculum that does that. So we actually spend an entire year. All we do with our first year students is teach them 80 different tools, right? Problem being one of them that they can apply to anything they do in their life, anything they do in their studies. And then we spend the next three years recontextualizing it formally mm. in various classes where they get two sets of assessments, both how they do in class, but also how they apply these tools mm. to the problems in that class. So not just and standardized experientially. testing. Okay. Exactly. Where they not only apply these things in classroom environments, but also in the real world. And they live, as you mentioned before, outside of San Francisco in their first year in six countries around the world, applying what it means to solve a problem in Seoul as is different than San Francisco or in Hyderabad as is different than Seoul. Right. And they are living together, correct? Yes. They're all living in one residence hall in any of the cities that they go to. During classes, you actually have gotten rid of the lecture and, right. and testing methods, right? You're using, what is the replacement, a form of seminar? Yes. That's right. So we've designed a, a kind of pedagogy called fully active learning. It, it turns out that the standard test and lecture based methodology is wildly ineffective. It's actually less effective at teaching students than sugar pills are at curing disease. <laughs> so if you take a pure placebo and you're really ill, you have a bacterial infection, you have a 30% chance that that placebo will cure mm. you. If you sit in a lecture and test based class, you have between a five to 10% chance of learning the material. Yikes. Yeah. And the 10% is using Ivy League students. Right. right. So the best very case best scenario. students, best case scenario. And so the, mm. the difficulty is that the modality is broadcasting of information. In order to learn, you have to do deep processing. Mm -hmm. And so Minerva classes are actually all held via live video. Even though all of our students live together, we want to have them 
learn in an environment where there's a camera pointed at their face, where we can provide them feedback on what they say, because it's the students that are doing most of the talking, not the professors. Hmm. And where we can actually use data to ensure that everybody participates and that we guide their intellectual development over time across class. Even down to the interface, I've seen different computer screens that have, you know, voting and polling and just different ways to engage students. It's far more immersive. And it has to be, especially for new generations who expect this kind of interaction with technology as well. If we can go and play a highly addictive game (laughs) uh, on our phones, then the classroom needs to be able to kind of keep up (laughs) or not only keep up, but spearhead and guide and bring us down into deep processing through through technology and, and through these these methods. I was watching some presentation. I did a lot of research in the last several hours here. And you use the pyramid where practical knowledge is at the top. It's split into three categories, right? So practical knowledge is at the top. The core competencies are in the middle tier and then habits of mind are on the bottom. I know that many institutions would claim to they would profess to be focused on critical thinking, creative thinking, effective interactions, effective communications. But the difference really is in these habits of mind. And so are those the the 80 principles that you're teaching? Okay. That's right. Habits of mind, foundational concepts that that then build up to these broader core competencies. And so, you know, if an institution says, I'm going to teach you how to think critically, right? You say, okay, how do you do that? Mm Mm-hmm. Just, just show me the process. Mm-hmm. When we say we teach critical thinking, we can demonstrate you take two semesters worth of component parts of critical thinking. Right. You have four years of assessment on how you apply them into all of these different contexts. Right. Other universities will say, well, you know, we teach you physics and you learn that by accident. Right. Guess what? That doesn't work. Right. It's like saying, you know, you know, we don't say, well, we'll teach you critical thinking and you'll learn physics by accident. Right. <laughs> no, you want to learn physics, you take physics classes, yeah. right? And obviously we have physics classes, but right. but but we do it with the purpose of those learning outcomes. And so all of these things, they're wonderful talking points, mm-hmm. but universities cannot show in a curriculum where it occurs. And by the way, even when universities say, look, we'll, we have a logic class in philosophy, and you actually measure students' application of logical principles after they take a philosophy course, horrible outcomes. <laughs> Doesn't work. Yeah. Because again, it's not transferable, mm-hmm. right? Unless the university actually does recontextualization at the beginning of the recontextualization for the students initially before they can do it originally themselves. Right. And the student environment, I'm thinking of how rigorous this program is. It's very hands-on, yeah. right? Just yes. as a almost a side question, what does the the general mental health of the students of Minerva look like? And have you compared that to what happens at other universities? Yeah, we have. And, you know, it's, you can look at it as both a good or a bad thing, depending on how you, you look at it. But if mm-hmm. you look at all of the um, things that are plaguing uh, college students today, anxiety, depression, things like that, if you look at the Minerva student body, we are exactly where every other university is. Okay. We have the same uh, level of reported, self-reported incidents of, of you know, anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. et cetera. Now, on one hand, you can look at it and say, well, that's that's a shame, right? You should, you know, try sure. to get people to, to a pace that, that is better. How can deep um, processing hand, and learning not be so yeah. right. harmful in, in a way? Right. Mm-hmm. On, on the other hand, you can say, wow, Minerva students are working about two and a half times more than a okay. typical American university student. If you look at actually hours spent at university by university students on their studies, it has plummeted over the last 50 years as forced grades have gone up. Mm. This is the rot, another part of the rot of American higher education. Minerva students spend 50 hours a week on average Oof. on their studies between class and preparation. It is a very, very intensive mm-hmm. uh, program. And so the fact that the mental health of the students is basically equivalent, right smack dab in the middle uh, on the average of, of the distribution, mm-hmm. at the very least means this is not necessarily a contributing factor or if it is that there are enough mitigating factors 
that right. that helps students cope with. Yeah, it. and I hope that by living together too, they're able to build a different kind of camaraderie that maybe would or would not exist in other spaces, especially when you travel together and encounter new cultures. That's right. always a really excellent way to bond with whomever you're traveling. So we're going to take a, another quick break. And when we come back, I just have kind of a spitfire round of plowing through questions and just giving it to you. And hopefully it doesn't cross too many lines. And if so, you can feel like, all right, that's too much. But I'm excited to get a little dicey when we come back. <laughs> Welcome back. We're still here learning all about higher education with Ben Nelson. So, Ben, <laughs> tell me, since Minerva is considered one of the most, if not the most, internationally diverse school on the planet, what definition of diversity are you using and how does that effectively look at Minerva? One of the realities is that talent is very broadly distributed around the world. It's distributed around socioeconomic class, gender, ethnicity, national origin, etc. And so the real trick to establishing a diverse student body means that you don't try. Because the reality is that when you try to manufacture diversity, you have all sorts of crazy outcomes, right? So if you look at the Minerva student body, it is, as you said, it's the most diverse student body in the United States by far right? 15% of our students are from the United States. Hmm. 85% are from outside the United States. They represent across our four classes, 60 different countries. Wow. Yet we have no country quotas. When we get an applicant from a country that we already have other applicants from, we don't treat them in a particular bucket. We don't look at all of the Mexican students in one bucket and say, oh, compete with one another. Hmm. We look at human beings as human beings. We measure them against themselves, and that's it. Okay. And so we have no process of quotas, advantages, different lines for different people. Hmm. Everybody is exactly the same, and we get wildly diverse student bodies by any measure. It could be the things that you see on people, the color of their skin, their hair color, their height, their weight, things right. like that. But it also... It's a diversity of interests. It's a diversity of perspectives, of thought. But we don't try for diversity. Okay. We just look for raw talent. And when you and when that's your only criteria, guess what? Raw talent exists everywhere. Yeah. And are you thinking specifically when you're curating the group, knowing they'll be living together? Are you playing with personality? We don't curate the group. Okay. That's great. So so we, we have an absolute bar. Wow. So if you if you pass that bar you're offered a role, a place at Minerva. Hmm. You can tell every single one of your friends to apply to Minerva and it will not lower your chances of entry. We're the only university in the world that does that because in other universities, this is a zero sum game, right? right? If you come in, somebody else has to go out. Yeah. You're fighting for a spot. There are no spots here, hmm. right? We look for people who we think can have tremendous contributions in the world hmm. in the future that have the raw capacity to be able to make substantial change to bring systematic thinking we refer to as critical wisdom to real world problems okay if we find more of those pro people why would we turn them away so if that's the case how much does minerva cost and where do people apply minerva costs a little over thirty thousand dollars a year tuition fees room and board and if you look at the price of outside of the price of being alive, right, the, the room and board, it's only about half of that is tuition and fees. So it's, it's about $40,000 less per year than a typical private nonprofit institution. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's a That's significant. substantial savings, yeah. significant. And people can apply on our website, uh, minerva.kgi.edu. Or you can just type Minerva into Google and it'll come up. And we also have different ways of experiencing Minerva. Minerva has what we talked about is the undergraduate residential program. Hmm. We also have a master's program. Wow. It's a master's in decision analysis. Ooh. And it's meant to be done part-time for people who are working. So they don't have to quit their job. Hmm. And then they can think about how do you have systematic decision-making capabilities at your fingertips that you can hmm. apply to anything. And it's an extraordinarily powerful concept. We even are now in March launching a short course. And the master's degree, by the way, the entire degree is, uh, is $40,000. Wow. And, and again, you can do it from anywhere in the world. You don't have to move. You don't have to change anything. A lot of other people have asked us, well, what's Minerva like? I'd like to get a taste of it. So in March, we're launching our first open enrollment course. Anybody can sign up for it. It's 
just under two thousand dollars, nineteen hundred bucks. And it's the topic of it is ethical applications of persuasive communications. So how do you actually get your message across in a persuasive way, but keeping in mind that you don't actually want to manipulate people? Right. Right. And I think so it gives you an opportunity to actually experience Minerva. Right. Um, now, talking about persuasive language, that kind of speaks to ideologies. And, you know, universities get a lot of flack for leaning certain ways politically. Does right. Minerva, I know that it from the apparent appearance of going traveling around the world together, you would think, oh, it's probably pretty open minded It encourages critical thinking and and confronting implicit bias and all of that. But is there a, any kind of political leaning side to, to Minerva? Yes. And it's a very important one to understand. Minerva is a firm believer in systematic thinking, as I've said. OK. Systematic thinking bounds your political reality. There is really no answer whether or not a particular approach or problem should be left of center, center, or right of center. Hmm. But there are certainly a wide a variety of solutions mm -hmm. that will not work. Mm -hmm. Our job is to bound, to give students the ability to bound the range of potentially realistic answers and to hmm. reject out of hand the fantasy land where, frankly, most universities and politicians exist. Hmm. Right? And so right. that's our political leaning. It isn't a partisan leaning, in fact, quite the opposite. Right. But it is very much a non-extreme right. solution because the extremes really don't work. Right. And there is empirical evidence as to why. And so you're helping people, you're providing them with a tool so that they can make more sound moral decisions and become more effective leaders wherever they exist. Um, Correct. And not society. within a particular moral framework, but to have exactly. them be able to create their own moral framework. Right. Right. We do not, we, Minerva is not an education that is grounded in context. Mm. It is an education that is grounded in concept. Hmm. The student's job is to contextualize. Other universities do not live in the world of concept. They live in the world of context. Yeah. So when you take a course from a professor, you're going to get that professor's biased context. Yeah. That is what you're going to learn. Right. We never approach a problem that way. That's really admirable and excellent. I wish I went to Minerva. You might be getting my application later. So I, I just have a question or two left. If, if Minerva is just so wonderful and you're seeing these incredible outcomes, why aren't universities jumping at the opportunity to adopt and adapt to your way? What's the greatest resistance that you're encountering? Their incentive structure. Got it. Right. If universities had the incentive to produce excellent education, we would be transforming every university in the world. Mm -hmm. Today, universities have bad incentive structures. They have incentive structures to increase their prestige. They have incentive structures to please certain government regulations, especially outside the United States. Yeah. They have incentives to cater to their alumni. They have incentives to uh, be able to cater to what the whims of their tenured faculty. Right. And if you go to a to faculty member and say, you have to retrain how you teach, you have to work twice as hard as you have before on, on educating your students, you yeah. have to refocus your career. And they say, what's in it for me? And they say, well, it's your duty. Mm -hmm. Most people say, eh, not so much. Mm. I'm going <laughs> to, I prefer to ignore it. And so the battle to reform higher education is a very long road, but it's one that we're fighting. And you are, by the way, starting to see universities come to terms. Right. I think if we have a conversation about this 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I don't know how long it'll take, but you're going to see a clear dividing line hmm. among universities in the world. Those universities that actually care about their educational outcomes yeah. and those that do not. The hmm. ones that care about their educational outcomes will either adopt Minerva systems or create ones that are even better. Yeah. The ones that don't will continue doing what they're doing now. Yeah, it's quite polarizing. And it's very visible in the outcome itself to know where someone stands. So the, the last question just has to do with the fact that the world is rapidly evolving technologically and that's affecting the workforce, job landscape and everything. So is there anything in particular about Minerva beyond what you've already shared? Is there anything else that helps equip students to enter in 2020 version of reality that gives them the leg up compared to other univers university students? 
the biggest leg up is your ability to apply systematic thinking yeah. to any context. The reality is your context will increasingly change. The rapidity of change yeah. is just increasing. And the educational system we have today is meant for no context change. Forget yeah. about the context change we've already been experiencing, let alone the one that's coming ahead. Right. And so Minerva is built for the modern world, right? And this is what every university should be done doing. That's oh, so good. Well, thank you so very much for sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom on this particular matter. I know we could go for hours, but turns out that we have other things to do with our day. Um, so we'll we'll put a pause here. I'm sure if people want to find more information on Minerva or on you, what are the best ways that they can do that online? The easiest way is just to go to minerva.kgi.edu or to just Google Minerva. And there's a outrageous number of, of videos. If anybody wants to actually learn more about Minerva and isn't sick and tired of, of after this conversation, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of resources online. Great. They really want to get very hardcore and nerdy. You can buy our 400-page book called Ooh. Building the Intentional University, nice. which talks about what we teach, how we teach, and uh, how we operate, and all of the research behind it. Amazing. Whew. Well, thank you again. We will get into our mantras here and just take a quick pause before then. Okay, friends. This was quite a heady episode, so our affirmations will complement that. Use these to reorient yourself in the way that you understand education and how you approach knowledge. And yeah, here we go. I'll say each twice and then you can repeat in the space for the third. Number one, I believe that education matters. I believe that education matters. Number two, I open myself up to new paths of learning. I open myself up to new paths of learning. And there's quite a kicker for the last one. <laughs> Stay with me. I stand for critical wisdom, the appropriate application of practical knowledge in novel context. Listen again. I stand for critical wisdom, the appropriate application of practical knowledge in novel context. And I'll say this with you again for the third. I stand for critical wisdom, the appropriate application of practical knowledge in novel context. Gorgeous. We are basically Minerva students. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review it and share your favorite takeaways so other people can find it. And I will see you next time for more Simplexity. It is anything but small talk. Peace.